When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. There's lots planned for today's show. We'll have a roundup of the latest round of the county championship. We'll look at a couple of the biggest talking points in the IPL. We'll hear about a brand new competition championing the women's game that gets underway this week. And we'll also be assessing some of the front runners for an England test spot with the first test of the summer less than a month away. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, and CrickViz analyst, Ben Jones. First, some news that we talked about last week that has since been confirmed. Ben Stokes is the new England Test captain and speaking to the media yesterday, he outlined his desire to see both Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Board return to the Test fold this summer. Here's Butch's take on Stokes' first week in office. There are a couple of standout lines, Butch, from Stokes' first day on media duties. He said about Braun Anderson, the best way to give yourself a winning Test match side is picking your 11 best players. If James Anderson and Stuart Broad are fit, they're up for selection because they are the two best bowlers in England. They are two greats of the game and in my opinion, it's stupid to never consider them for selection. They are part of the best 11, so it's pretty simple. Ben Stokes only captain England in one Test match and for that one Test match, he didn't deem Stuart Broad to be in England's best 11. So what do you make of his assessment that Anderson and Broad are England's two best bowlers? Um, well, I'd, first thing I suppose is, is, is when, you're, when your job, when your head is on the chopping, chopping block, you tend to see things slightly differently um, than perhaps you might do when you're, uh, when you're just in the ranks. So, um, you know, I wouldn't read too much into the, uh, the previous uh, occasion where he left out Stuart Broad. Um, and also, I mean, you know, none of that is anything that anyone could disagree with, really, is it? I mean, he, he spent hundreds and hundreds of overs in the field um, in the West Indies just recently um, without those two bowlers. Whether or not either of them would have made a massive amount of difference is a moot point, um, particularly on the pitches in Barbados and Antigua. I think obvious that they would have been uh, a cutting edge for England in, uh, in, in Grenada, um, as Carl Myers was. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's what you'd expect him to say, to be perfectly honest with you. The, the other guys, the, the youngsters, that's like Matt Fisher didn't do himself any harm. No, did Sakeem Mahmood. They both uh, had uh, periods where they looked the goods. But the, the simple fact of the matter is that they are a long way away in terms of experience. Um, uh, and, and therefore, if you're looking to try and, as a captain, try to get off to a flying start, get wins under your belt, particularly playing in conditions at, at home, then you are going to pick those two guys. It's, mm. It absolutely stands to reason that none of it should surprise anybody. Yeah, I guess that when you actually come down to like working out what what a bowling attack will look like in home conditions, you can quite quickly get into a position where it's it's not that easy to squeeze them both in. So, Ollie Robinson had a brilliant year last summer. He was probably England's bowler of the summer. We don't know how fit he is at the moment, sure. 
Um, there's always a question of who bats eight because if you pick just the four best bowlers, that is a very long tail, especially if you want to get a spinner in there. I know Jack Leach didn't play last summer, but there might be a temptation to bring in either him or Parkinson for the first test of the summer. So as soon as you do that, so, and, and, and you might want a bowler who's got a point of difference like a Mahmood or Wood when he's fit, then it is not that straightforward to get both of them in the side. No, you're right. But, but then if... If you're saying so, Ollie Robinson, for example. Um, now, Ollie Robinson is a is a sort of is almost a carbon copy of one or the other of Gordon Anderson, isn't it? You know, it gives you exactly the same. Um, and so, you know, you could if you wanted a bowling attack with Stokes as your four seamer, um, Broad and Anderson both in it, Mark Wood as, as your pace bowler, presuming the pitches remain as as good and, and as um, as unseamer friendly as they have been in the in the first rounds of the championship, then that's then that's your bowling attack. And and I think for England, I think in order to make the, the decision about Broad and Anderson's future um, as clear as possible, which is why I disagree with neither of them going to the West Indies. Well, you play them until until they prove that they're not. Um, stop worrying about what's happening in the you know in the winter or where you're going in the winter and who's going to be rotated in and out, play, play what you think your best 11 is. And if they, and if they prove themselves not to be your best 11, then you say, thank you very much for your unbelievable service and, and you move on. Mm. But the, the reason we're in this, in the position we're in at the moment is because, and, and I've said it before, and I will say it again, if either of those two, two guys had played in Antigua and Barbados, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation now. Um, you know, that they, they would have been pensioned off and it would have been time to have looked to have looked elsewhere. And that's you know that's no slight that's no slight against either of them. It's just that that we would have seen that in those conditions they would have fared probably no better than the than the guys that played. The other interesting thing was that Stokes said that he he wants to bat at six, which again is quite interesting, especially with the number of holes there are in that top seven. Anyway, it does push at least one of the holes in that side for a, for a potential newbie higher than it might otherwise could be. Yeah, it does. Um, but then, you know, he's captain now. <laughs> it was the same with Root, wasn't it? I mean, you know, Joe for ages, everybody said he should bat at number three. Everybody, I didn't say he should have bat at number three. I was very happy with him at number four making runs. Um, but Ben now has the, has the added responsibility of being captain. And if he sees it, that, that six is going to be the place where he is, most productive with the bat, with the ball, and has a has a, a clear enough mind to, to manage all the rest of the stuff, then that's where he goes. Um, you know, and interesting is somebody like Josh Bohannon, perhaps, or even even sort of not even, but sort of somebody like uh, Ollie Pope. Again, five would be a more natural fit for either of those two than four in the Test match team. Um, so look, I don't think I don't see that as being a major issue. Johnny Bester, obviously, you know, he's he's been batting at six. He's been very happy at six. Um, but when you're in the side as a as a batsman only, then you know perhaps five might be a better spot for him as well. Mm. But you know, oh, there's a lot of a lot of stuff in terms of the the uh, the balance of the England side. You know, Ben Stokes is interesting because by by right he should balance the team, being a, you know top order a, a top six batter who bowled. But quite often, England is sort of looking around trying to shelter him from doing too much bowling. So it's almost like he unbalances them. You've got an all-rounder there that you're not, not expecting to perform as an all-rounder. Mm. Um, so all of these things will, will fly into the mix. And, um, you know, a, around that, if, 
if he's brave enough, not brave enough, but if he wants to pick Jordan Anderson in that first test match of the summer, then, the, then you put the pressure on them, don't you? You say, listen, you guys, you pr- prove it. Um, win us test matches and, uh, and you are unimpeachable. If you don't, then, then nobody will have a problem with moving on. They really won't. Um, least of all the guys themselves, if they feel that they're not worth the place in the side and they've, they've been allowed to, to, to prove it on merit, i.e. by being on the park, um, rather than being left out for sort of spurious rest and rotation reasons, then they, you know, they're, they're big enough and old enough and ugly enough to turn around and go, look, okay, now's the time. Mm. But all of the while, all the while that they are, that they are sort of keen to, keen to prove or, or aren't being given the chance to prove whether they're not the best two in the side, then, they, then this, this argument rumbles on forever. And, and just generally, what have you made of Stokes' first few days in the job? I guess, you, you know, you, you, you generally don't expect that much from a new captain when he speaks to the press for the first time, but Stokes has said, you know, in a quite forthright manner, exactly what he thinks about some key issues that have been question marks hovering around this side for a while. Yeah, and, and that's great, isn't it? And it's kind of, you know, you've got, you've got Rob Key, who is, um, um, is completely no bullshit. <laughs> He's just, he has no time for, for bullshit, all bullshitters. Um, good luck with the beeps. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm guessing that Ben Stokes is, is very much the same. Um, and, and that's refreshing, you know. You've got two guys there that are in charge who are who are as far away from from people who are going to use management speak and all that kind of nonsense um, as as you can want. And you know, you're in, we're in the honeymoon period, aren't we? It's it's, it's always easy until until the the, the 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 teams take the field. And at the moment, he's he's making the right noises. He's do, he's doing exactly what you'd expect him to do, which is be forthright about his his right to be in the job. He wants to put his stamp on it, and I'm sure he will. Um, and look, you know, in terms of the wisdom of, of the whole thing, as we've said, he's kind of like, he's, he's the only choice. Um, I think he will throw himself at it as he throws himself at everything else, you know. Um, and any worries that people might have about, um, you know, either his workload or the way that it might affect him off the field and all these other things, I think, I think you can part those worries with Ben mm. until such a time as the whole thing comes to a head and it, and it goes boom, you know. He's going to give it absolutely everything he's got, um, and, I, and I really hope it's successful for him. Even if it, even if it doesn't last very long, I mean that's, you know, we we tend to get suckered into the idea that being made England captain is a sort of job for life until until it breaks you. Well, it doesn't have to be like that. Mm-hmm. I think two years of Ben Stokes operating at, at full tilt, um, at full madness, might be very very exciting for everybody. And um, I, for one, am very happy to look forward to it. Edward asks, is Ben Jones okay after news that Stokes will not only move up to number three, but actually move down the order? Um, For listeners who are unaware, Ben has for a long time advocated Stokes batting at three in test cricket. So yeah, Stokes has said he's going to move down at number six. So Ben, how are you doing? Uh, Yeah, I've had better weeks. (laughs) No, I I mean, I've I've long since abandoned hope on that one, I think, you know, as his his body started to, to crumble a little bit. I was thinking maybe we can turn him into a specialist bat and push him up the order but he, he seems to be quite reluctant to and Root did so well moving up to three in the Windies you have to kind of yeah take that one on the chin but it, it's frustrating because genuinely I've been saying this for like four years of like Stokes's technique is just unreal it's so it's so solid all of our models suggest that he's naturally a number three and you know his natural exuberance you know if you take that away he's he is perfect and you know he went through that amazing 2020 and had that run of form but then obviously since then his time out of the game I think rather took the sting out of the momentum of it um and yeah as a result he's back down to number six where normal all-rounders go rather than the geniuses which is 
is what we wanted to try and make him into. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm happy to take this one. I have to come up with a new agenda. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it will be. I've got, I've normally got a few lined up, but the cupboard's bare at the moment. Well, we'll talk more about England later in the show, uh, but let's first look at the latest round of county championship action. Somerset after a miserable start to the season with the only team to win in Division 1. Matt Renshaw, who was named in the Australia A squad this week for their upcoming tour of Sri Lanka, scored 100 for them there. There were a couple of games that came close to result. Yorkshire were dominant against Kent but couldn't force a win on the final day. Bad light prevented them from chasing 114 from 21 overs. Uh, there were second hundreds for the season for Kent's Daniel Bell Drummond and Yorkshire's Harry Brook, who fell six short of a first career double hundred. Also, an amazing news from Grant Stewart. Not yes, if you, if yeah, you yeah. He, he was on loan at Sussex uh, last week, recalled this week, and yeah. And, and was, yeah, he was on one leg as well, had a runner and just was swinging away. Uh, so got to like about a runner ball 91 and then was run out. Obviously, roosted at his crease while his runner, Jordan Cox, I think, couldn't get to the other end in time. It's not uh, a bad runner to have, actually, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and look, yeah, that, that one really did look like it was going to be an amazing finish and then a sort of almost farcical bad light thing. Mm. But yeah. Essex did well to escape with a draw against North Ants. Nick Gubbins had a brilliant game against Lancashire and their A-list attack for Hampshire, hitting two hundreds, the first of which was unbeaten. Ben, who do you who do you fancy for the title at this at this stage of the season? Um well, it's such a shame that that last day in Hampshire Lancashire was rained out because that looked like it was going to be a really barnstorming finish sort of uh, three totals that were you know a hundred runs separating all of them just about uh, Lancashire chasing 350 odd to win on the last day we know they've got a very consistent batting line we know that Hampshire have a brilliant bowling attack it looked like almost like an early sort of you know what one of those games if it was in the Premier League you'd say team can't win the title here but they can lose it sort of thing uh, and then and then it was washed out but I'd say that those two I mean you look at the strength of their attacks and you look at how the batters have managed to do in in those respects sides well and you say that those two look pretty tough to beat Surrey have also put together a pretty good run Jamie Smith looks really really impressive uh, and they also have a very good bowling attack and also a deepish one as well um, I guess the question is going to be as well how England absences affect these teams I mean Lancashire could end up losing well they almost certainly will lose two players uh and might well lose a third if if Matt Parkinson gets a call up as well. I mean, they do have some depth. I mean, the fact that Mahmood and Parkinson were both left out of the team for this game uh, for Tom Bailey's playing. Tom Bailey's, you know, one of the, the, the best county bowlers in the country. Um, Hampshire are slightly less likely to be affected by that with Abbas and Abbott always available and Keith Barker uh, having a, a brilliant season. But again, he's n- not close to the frame for England section. So I'd say... And reasonably likely that all of their top six are not going to play for England. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we'll come to, I guess, Garvin's and Vince later, but you wouldn't say that either of those are, are absolutely hot favourites because actually there's there's an outside chance that either of them might get a go. Uh, but uh, yeah, you'd say that, that they're, they're, they might well end up with that team that played in the Lancashire game basically playing for most of the season. And that is going to be a pretty tough team to beat in general, I think. The other game I didn't mention there was the, the, the Surrey-Gloucester draw where it was a... Over a thousand runs with a loss of twelve wickets across the course of the game. Jamie Smith with a double hundred for Surrey and Chris Dent for a double with a double hundred for Gloucestershire. Another way that people can discount Ollie Pope's runs away from the <laughs> oval there. Just notching that one up already. Well, we had a discussion in the office about whether or not uh, Bristol. So Pope has never scored a hundred north of the Thames, and Pope ended up getting eighty-four or something like that. And we had a discussion in the office about whether or not uh, this would have counted as a hundred that was north of the Thames because the Bristol ground 
is both north and to the south of various points on the Thames in central London. So it's south of Waterloo Bridge, for example, but north of uh, Putney Bridge. North, north so, of the midpoint of the Thames as well, I yeah. think. <laughs> uh, but then the Oval is also north of some parts of the Thames. Exactly. And there's no way you're going to be able to sell advertising on this pod with this, this level of <laughs> river chat. No, I think the, uh, the, 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 the funny thing with Pope and the away from the Oval thing is it, I, I, I kind of jest with it. Is because um, I always say, like, you know, he averages like 45 away from the over, which is pretty decent compared to basically every other batsman in England everywhere. Um, but it is funny that when, when he does go away, there is always like a way that someone who's, you know, normally normally uh, kind of Essex Mafia or something manages to find out, oh, you know, actually Dan Lawrence scored 83 when he went to Bristol, <laughs> which is et cetera, et cetera. Ben, what's your moment of the week? Uh, well, I had a few from the round of the county championship, actually. But um, in the end, what just took top spot was uh, Harris Ralph, Yorkshire's Harris Ralph against Kent's Nathan Gilchrist. Uh, so Nathan Gilchrist, this was his fifth of six consecutive ducks, which has equaled the first class record. So I'm sure that that stream will have absolutely massive numbers when he comes into bat uh, this weekend. Uh, and this one he couldn't do a huge amount with because Harris Ralph was bowling very quickly as he can do. He hasn't played a huge amount of first class cricket, but it's been very impressive for Yorkshire so far. Um, and just a, a, a very quick leg stump, leg stump York that basically took him off his feet. And there's an amazing picture by Gareth Copley that has done the rounds uh, that, uh, yes, showed Gilchrist being sort of knocked off his feet, basically, literally. So, yeah, mm. amazing moment. In, in Division 2, uh, there was an amazing game between Glamorgan and Derbyshire, with Glamorgan finishing 310 for eight, chasing 331 on the final day, with Marnus Labashain and Sam Northeast nearly pulling off an epic last day run chase. Brooke Guest for Derbyshire became the first Derbyshire keeper to score centuries in both innings of a match since 1896. Uh, elsewhere, there was a good win for Knotts. Ben Duckett was in the runs again. Dane Patterson took a career best eight for, uh, but the performance of the game was probably Ed Barnard's extraordinary 163 not out for Worcestershire that kind of kept them in the game, but it wasn't quite enough to win the game for them. Middlesex thumped Leicestershire at Lords, though Ben Mike for Leicestershire, 23 year old all round, had a very good game for the visitors, scoring 99 not out and taking four for 15. I thought when you were discussing the Knotts game, you were about to say performance of the game probably came from Stuart Broad, who smashed a 47 <laughs> or 25 in the first innings and it's a uh, first innings since since the Ashes uh, and was cruelly deprived of the chance for an absolutely rapid 50 by two wickets in four balls, I think. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, we're less than a month away from the start of the Test summer. Ben, I can't remember England starting a summer with so few spots in the 11 sewn up. So Stokes and Root aside, I wouldn't say anyone is... Guarantee, guarantee the place in the team. I guess Bairstow as well. Um, and I guess now we know that Anderson and Broad are back in the frame. At least one of them will probably play if available. First question on this, uh, BJ Gorton asks, is Crawley's position untenable? Frustratingly similar mistakes to get out on test matches and a sample size to suggest that he will not exceed his moderate first-class record. Low scores in the county championship. Um, yeah, Crawley averages less than 20 in the county championship this season. His first class average, if he, if he gets a pair in his next game for Kent, his career first class average will drop below 30 and he's played over 70 matches. He's got six first class hundreds from 70 games. At what point, obviously, there are lots of people whose opinions we all respect who really rate Zach Crawley. But at what point do you have to look at the numbers and go, he's actually had quite a few opportunities it's not worked out for him he's James Vince for the TikTok generation isn't he <laughs> it's um, yeah, frustrating because we can all watch him and go yeah that's that is a player right there um, but equally there's very little to back it up apart from a 
two six seven in a test match. <laughs> I mean, let's get into it. I mean, we, we've you've kind of lined me up to do the test selection kind of quick viz overview of the of, of the summer and who might play, who should play, who shouldn't. And um, we'll probably yeah, we're, we're going down that direction early. It's very difficult to find any kind of numbers or analytics or data, whatever you want to call it, based you know reason to to pick Zach Crawley for the reasons that the the listeners outlined. There is that you go through his first class record. There's very little to be impressed by. You go through his test record and you've got the big standout knocks and you've got a couple ones in between, you know, that last morning at Sydney and all that. You know, you've got those those flourishes, but you haven't got the body of work. And it's actually been quite a, lo- a long time that he's played test cricket now. He's young, but he's, he's got a reasonable sample size there. And you go through and you look at the, the main kind of markers of or predictors of success when you're looking at a first-class bat- batter compared to a, to a test batter or, you know, trying to draw the line between the two. And you're looking at, obviously averages simple average against the new ball which is really important how often how, how in control they are which you can measure with a few different things you know like you can you can weight runs in certain ways or you can look at the false shots or all this kind of stuff you can look at when they bat who they bat against you know test bowlers look at how the runs are how many other runs have been scored in the match all those kind of stuff there's plenty of ways of putting context on it and there's basically none of them which support the idea that Zach Crawley is going to become a test batter now that doesn't. That is not me saying we should not pick him, because as you say, we can all look at Zach Crawley and go, he has got something. The thing is that something is just is, is essentially impossible to quantify. We cannot work it out. It might be because it's irrelevant. <laughs> There's basically no numerical way of saying what Zach Crawley has makes a good test batter, because what Zach Crawley has is an ability to time the hell out of a cover drive and a flick through mid wicket. Loads of people can do that. Loads of people can't. Crawley clearly stands as like aside from the bulk of English batters in that sense. But does that actually mean that he's going to go on and make a career in Test cricket at the top of the order? Probably not. <laughs> but I, th- I think this is the thing of like where analytics merges with gut feel. Personally, I, I don't really have a problem with England picking Crawley at all for that exact reason that you need to have a blend of number-based selections and also where you just look and go, that is it. But England have been picking him for two years and he's not delivered enough consistency consistency to to keep demanding selection. So when, where do you draw the line? It's a long way of saying, I don't know, but I don't really know what else Zach Crawley can do in county cricket to get dropped, basically. Like, it, 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 he could have essentially got all these, he could have got duck every single innings. And if he plays the first game of the summer, it doesn't seem to matter, basically. Yeah, well, I, I guess there's... Uh, what, what, one thing in Crawley's favour is that there aren't any other standard openers right now really apart from Alex Lee's obviously the incumbent who's had a brilliant start to the season uh you know what does right, what does right now mean though uh well as, as in uh, yes yeah, so, last so, three weeks like, yes yeah, well, well be, be, basically yeah and 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 that is an admittedly small sample size and so I wouldn't be hugely surprised if any one of quite a number of openers gets a score or two in the next weeks and becomes quite significantly in the frame and one of those could be Crawley I mean you know he does occasionally just produce sort of standout performances and if that comes in the next two weeks then you wouldn't have an issue. And even then, you know, even without that, there might just not be another player who all of a sudden six games becomes quite a big sample size. And if he has just an equivalently bad record to lots of other candidates and, you know, we know that the people in charge of the team are a fan and he got a hundred, three test matches ago and a 70 the test before that, then maybe you, or sorry, two tests before that, then maybe you have more of a case. I think the other thing to say though is that like backing and nurturing potential doesn't just have to mean picking someone over and over and over again. Uh, And there is a risk because I think you've made this point, Yaz, before, that you get quite a lot of players who have played 
about the number of games that Crawley has and have about the test record he has. You don't get very many who have played sort of five tests more than Crawley has and have about that record. So the next chance when it comes, if it doesn't turn out to be a productive one, could kind of be the last one. You could end up saying, okay, let's give Crawley this summer because we know he's really talented and because we know he's got loads of potential. He doesn't crack it because he's not in the right form right now and he hasn't let, yet learned to, to make the most of his talent and to score those like hundreds regularly. And then all of a sudden it actually becomes very hard to pick him again in the future when he kind of has figured that out. And actually you see that with, with some of the other people that are in the frame at the moment that have kind of had a go or a couple of goes in test cricket. And maybe now they have kind of learned how to be sort of consistent enough in first class cricket that they might make a better fist of it. But that will kind of be sort of like an albatross around their neck in terms of selection. Well, that's the skill. That's the skill of selection as opposed to talent ID, isn't it? You know, there's a. It, it, I'd say analytics is far more engaged with, like, with the latter of who is ready to play test cricket right now and who is likely to succeed. That's just basically working out, you know, predicting averages and predicting how well people will do if they turn up at Lords in a couple of weeks' time. Selection is about looking long term, medium term, short term, and plotting a player's career. Is it good for Zach Crawley to play this summer if he's going to basically end his career this summer or end it, end it for five years because he's going to get beaten up by players because he's not quite there yet? Is it important that Ollie Pope plays this summer or does Ollie Pope need to go away? I think what our numbers suggest is that Ollie Pope is extraordinarily ready to play Test cricket and is the standout batter aside from the established stars in Test cricket in, in English cricket and probably should play but Crawley you can make the argument like you say and I've had this conversation with Will McPherson um, a few times which is I don't think Crawley will ever make a case for selection in test cricket in county cricket he will make it in ODI cricket if he ever plays he'll do a kind of Jason Roy Alex Hales where he kind of batters a load of runs in white ball and people go geez this guy can bat and then they throw him back in I don't think he's ever going to go back and make five tons in seven games for Kent I just don't think his game is suited to it unless county cricket changes irrevocably but I don't think that's going to happen in the you know within Crawley's career and it's also sorry it's also intriguing to note his struggles compared to the rest of the Kent top order as well like the, the first county games he plays after saying that averaging 35 in county cricket is a very impressive thing and he's then struggling when Ben Compton and Daniel Bell Drummond are both sort of reeling off big scores um, but we should discuss alternatives I guess. One more thing on Crawley is I just wonder if it's almost like um, his promotion to the test side I think happened because of the lack of alternatives. I think if Zach Crawley comes through in an era where there are more more players who are obviously test cricketers around his age. He plays white ball cricket and does really well on that. I really like the Hales and Roy comparisons. Those are two players who hit really good cover drives against really fast bowling and look amazing. But yeah, Ben, you're right. We need to look at alternatives. Who, who do you think would you like to see at the top of the order for the first test of the summer? Well, I think Lees has a very strong case. I mean, he there was sort of a bit of sort of raised eyebrows and sort of knowing looks in the West Indies at, you know, how he shaped up and what his technique was like. But he didn't disgrace himself in terms of he regularly made it through the new ball. I think, you know, when England made that massive score in Barbados, some credit had to go to Lees for getting through what was the most testing period of the innings. And you'd hope that that is valued because I think that's a valuable thing, even if it's not an attractive eye-catching thing I think the primary job of the opener is to see off the new ball and I think that he showed he can do that Uh, I mean there's lots of things we don't know about Lees and I'm not saying that Lees is you know a world-class test opener and waiting but 
that was there was some amount of problems in that and he has had a brilliant start to the season he's you know averaging 150 albeit in div two has got some some big scores in there uh well, he carried his back to need for 180 which is a, a really really impressive innings uh and the other slot i mean i kind of have basically no idea which is why i think they might well go with crawley because you know you look at other openers they have had recently burns and sibley have both had equally if not worse starts the season than crawley's had i mean neither of them has made a a 50 so far and Corey does have two as you say two two good scores in his last five tests and exactly. I know he's averaging average isn't great but when there are so few options it wouldn't be the most ridiculous thing in the world be, for him to stay in the seat yeah I'd be, I mean I'd be broadly I'd be gobsmacked if he didn't play the first test of the summer for all kinds of reasons <laughs> but I think I mean with the the selection stuff that, that I've done just like just a little bit of you know back of an envelope trying to pull together a few bits and bobs it, what stands out is that as as Ben's kind of alluded to there is that the, the two the two best opening batsmen for test cricket in England right now are, are Dom Sibley and Rory Burns they are they are the ones that have got that are the that are kind of that come to the fore with the numbers and that's partly because as you say seeing off the new ball is crucial and Rory Burns his record of doing that in the county championship and in English cricket is is really good I know he's got the kind of dot 100 problem but like it's not a bad problem to have if you keep if you make hundreds every couple of innings. And Sibley, whilst he has his you know his his majestic cover drive through mid wicket as his main stroke, like he is still very good at getting through the early overs, and he doesn't ever really nick off. I, it's it's a boring point to come back to those two being the best players, but I think in the mad you know whirly gig of last year when everything seemed to go wrong, everyone's head got a bit scrambled, and it was like no. You know, we need to throw this, throw everything out with the bathwater and just really get. You know, we need to look ahead to Australia and Milan can can bat in the top three. It's great. Let's get him in there. When actually, probably a bit of level-headed thinking and not sacking the selector halfway through the year probably sees the two best players seeing going through to the Ashes. I know Burns didn't have a good Ashes, but good players can have bad tours. I think Lee's it, by our, by this kind of metric that I've tried to pull together is probably England's third or I think third or fourth um, best and I think when you add that to the fact that he's the incumbent did a decent job and neither Sibley or Burns are banging the door down I mean, and so I, th- I think again there's an element of like just because the numbers say that this guy is the best in the abstract is this the right time to pick him I'm not, I'm not sure it definitely is I, I, I touched on something quite interesting in that normally when you pick a test cricket team you you're almost picking a side for a year you're, you're like really backing players but when you don't have an obvious best two openers then picking it on form does actually make sense, right? Like you're not making a decision on this guy is the best opener we definitely have. If if there's not much of a gap between one, two, three, and four, it's fine to kind of pick. Yeah, on form, definitely. Isn't it? If if you're if you're going that within that kind of range of like you're not just going, you know, Brett Oliveira made a double last week, yeah. get him in. It's if it's like guys who are on your radar, which obviously they are. England have got depth charts, you know, all over the wall at Loughborough, and they'll be saying, you know, this guy's the eighth best, and actually he's smashing it. Get him in. I think I think there's a logic to that because you're giving a player the best chance to succeed potentially but yeah that's that the, again it's it's that it's that tension that comes between picking the best players and picking them at the right time but yeah i think i I'd, I'd probably go um crawley and uh and lees just because of burns and sibley's form but uh, personally if if you if you put a gun to my head and said who's likeliest to succeed I'd go Burns and Sibley. Yeah, I guess the thing is, is that you, you rightly point to heads being scrambled and, you know, it having been a very rough time to be in that test environment, that sort of thing. But I think you then need to see evidence that their heads have become unscrambled, basically, which we haven't yet seen. And we know that both have done some work on their techniques and that can need some time to bed in and that sort of thing. And I'm more administrative heads that are now no longer there. Right, right. But, that have since rolled. <laughs> but, but, then, but then I guess, you know, you see 
players when they're in a struggling team and they're struggling for form themselves. And you, you basically, it's very, very rare to see a batter who has knocked a bang down the door in counter cricket to win test selection, struggle, then get dropped. They rarely go back and are as successful in counter cricket straight away. And so you kind of need to, I think, wait until they earn a recall, basically. And it's not just because, you know, it's like a punishment for being dropped. It's just that you like that has an effect on how good a player someone is. Absolutely. Guess- and, it's, and it's important, obviously, for you know, county cricket as a whole to see that there's a pathway into the team. You can't just, you can't just be a yo-yoing back and forth in and out of the side. Suddenly it's the nineties again. But, and to illustrate sort of how bare the cupboard is in a way, like I was trying to think of who the other alternatives are. I guess you have Tom Haynes in at Sussex, who is very young, never faced a ball in division one, but has, uh, has, 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 has you know, he scores a lot of runs. He, he shapes up pretty well, but as I say, that would be a massive punt. Uh, you've got, I guess, Chris Dent at Gloucestershire, who they, the Gloucestershire fans tell you should have played for England by now, has a first class average above 40, which is impressive. You know, a few seasons ago, you would have probably said he was maybe close than he is now, but... Slightly, a, slightly below 40, but yeah, still okay, very good. Had, had, had a poor year last year, uh, has had a good start to the count season, but he's had sort of, in his first few games, had a failure and a low 50 in each one, so he's averaging about 30 coming into his most recent game and gets that double hundred, which obviously is impressive, but that isn't a game where a thousand for 12 was scored. So that's I'm not, I don't know if that suggests that he is a, a test opener right now, but, and, and then you've got possibly someone like James Bracey or Nick Gubbins. Well, Bracey was the guy I was going to say, and it comes back to the madness of last year and the way that certain players were handled. You know, Bracey was probably the next cab off the rank, gets played out of position and then it's seemingly in the, in the dark again. I think he's a guy who, if he'd have had a cracking start to the season and was getting a bit of momentum behind him, then I think I'd be pushing. I know he's more of a three than an opener, but the, well, that's the thing. Is but, that- but again, you know, at this at this stage, is there really that much of a difference? I know, I know, people say Raúl Dravid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but come on, we're not talking about that that caliber of player here. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Br- Bracey, he has he's had a pretty good start to the season. He got that hundred in the Lions game, hundred in his first two games, struggled his last two. But you know, with with, with another score, he's all of a sudden got three hundreds and is one of the standout bats in the country. I could see that happening, Gubbins. It, that was just one game, but those were 200s against a, a massively skilled Lancashire attack. So that means a fair amount. And okay, it was a long time ago, but he was at one point the next cab off the rank and for I an opening slot. I, and I think someone who has that declines and then comes back, you can want to pick them at the right time. I'm not saying Govins for England, but, but and, and I'm saying I'm saying this is actually kind of how bare the cupboard is, is that I don't think before the season, anyone would have been shouting for Nick Govins to get a go in the first test of the summer. And now all of a sudden he's kind of one of not very many realistic, like even semi-realistic options. Yeah, he's, the guy, he's the guy you'd get on like, Gubbins is like the guy you'd get 10th on a list of guys who might open for England in six months. And it's when they've, when, you know, Jerno has gone, geez, I need someone to round out my numbers. He can't have an article with seven. So it's like, I think it's that level of like flyer. I think we all kind of respect the idea of the next cover off the rank at some point is an indication of a, a deeper run of form you know you cut people come in and out and I think that I think that is a good way to go but equally you can end up you know I remember listening to this podcast last year when Yas was trying to get Adam Lyth to open for England and it's like <laughs> that, that can happen just because you recognize a player you value their hundreds a little bit more wisely mm, and that's not me saying Ali or for England though but. <laughs> Dan Lawrence back four for England in the Caribbean uh, we don't know whether the route will bat three or four yet this summer but someone needs to bat at either three or four, wherever Root doesn't bat. Ben, who would you like to see? Obviously, it's slightly different depending on where Root bats. If Root bats, let's say Root goes back to four, who would you like to see at three? Yeah, this is this is the one I'll get criticised for. So I'm, I'm already like feeling creepy about saying it. But um, I think Josh Bohannon should probably be batting three for England this summer or four behind Joe Root. Um, I know he's not played much first-class cricket, 
but we're talking about how bare the cupboard is. We're talking about how few legitimate top order options there are. But Hannon's numbers are extremely good, both in a, in a very simplistic sense of scorecard numbers, but also his deeper numbers of control and uh, you know contact numbers and his 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 numbers in very particular areas. You know, good length record, new ball record, all this kind of stuff. You know, he's one of the he's one of the best players of the new ball in the country. Um, and that's partly because he's facing a slightly older version of it, but it's still the new ball. And we we talk about the, how the Duke's ball swings around all day. I think I think it does matter. And I think you know I know I know this podcast is basically get the Lancashire team in the England squad uh, podcast, but I think Bahannon is probably a slightly less sexy version of of the Parkinson agenda. In that this guy is, I think he is just really good, and he is probably slightly ahead of the curve in terms of being picked. He's probably one for next year in an ideal world, but we're not in an ideal world. We're in a Red Bull reset and we've got a new captain and no one can, no one in England can bat. So yeah. I think I think, I think think if you're taking a punt and we're looking for these flyers, I don't mind someone like a Bahannon whose underlying numbers are, are really, really good. So what, what are control numbers? You've, you mentioned a couple of statistical so things there. So that's to do with um, either false shot percentage, which is basically what it sounds like. How often do you edge or play a miss? Um, which is a relatively solid indicator of how many runs you will score, how, you know, your batting average in Red Bull cricket, um, or contact average, which is a slightly more sophisticated version of it, which is where you kind of weight runs that are scored with a good connection, i.e. like a middle middle cover drive for four, you give a little bit more weighting than a nick through the slips for four. So a way of quantifying like a streaky hundred. Yeah, you know, it's, it, the yeah. Diff- it's the difference between a, a chanceless hundred and someone mm. who's come out and whacked 120 no, on, day, on, day far, on day four of a, a, a drawn game when it's thousands for two. It's that kind of thing. And am I right thinking so, because so contact, that's different to the timing rating, which is about how many of your cover drives go for four? Timing rating, in essence, it's to do with, it's basically the white ball version of that uh, that figure. So in, in white ball cricket, we talk about guys like Shubman Gill and Virat Kohli having incredible timing ratings, which is basically they never edge the ball in white ball cricket. And it doesn't necessarily translate. In fact, it often translates to not being good at, what, at T20 cricket. Um, more of that later. But it, I think in red ball cricket, it's essentially the best indicator unless you've got very deep metrics in terms of tracking data and all this kind of stuff and second 11 and you know how, how well they batted when they were nine against Bolton under twos or whatever but like they uh, having that knowledge of how they score their runs uh, is really valuable I think in terms of being predictive and that's that's been shown over a relatively long period of time and Bahannon is someone who does really well by those numbers so I've got to, I've kind of got to stand by it otherwise I'm no, going to get I, done by the lads in the office so. No, I, I, I think he's got a compelling case I mean he averages pretty much 47 48 first class my, my only reservation with Bahannon is that he's only scored four first class hundreds that's because he just hasn't played that much yeah I mean like England are coming up against two really good attacks this this summer and ideally you'd, you'd want more you know a greater body of work before you make your test debut but England can't really so who, yeah, I mean, who else is who else is the, I, I, well of the option so I've, I've got a few names and I guess it also comes down to sort of like a philosophy of selection thing where and I think England have done the Bahannon type pick quite a lot where you pick someone based on a, often it's just like it's it's a few seasons of like okay run scoring to be like as you say 10th on one of those lists and then a very uh, a, a bumper season and then it's like okay let's get this guy in now the Sibley trajectory it, yeah exactly or or, or even yeah there's a, a few guys you could put in that category and Bahannon would be in that and you think like well this guy could be you know a guy who can average 40 45 and like really take our testing to the next level or you go for a player who you kind of you know that like they've done like pretty well for quite a long time but you've maybe seen them before so the three guys who would be in that category I think would be 
Ben Duckett, David Milan and James Vince, all of whom have had decent starts this season, uh, all of whom have like, you know, shown flashes in, in, in at the international level of what they can do uh, and all of whom have actually had pretty good or really kind of very good numbers in terms of the English uh, metric instead of averaging like 40 or thereabouts for like quite a long time. Uh, and so I think any of those, but I, but I guess the thing is, is that even with those guys, there's no guarantee of even like a, a decent level of returns. I mean, like you look at, you know, all, all of them average less than 13 test cricket. You look at Milan sort of, he, you could say that, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on in that Ashes tour, as we've discussed. He had more than anyone else with his wife heavily pregnant, ended up having quite a difficult birth, which was during that last test. And he actually did a very good interview with, uh, I think it might have been Simon Wilde in the Times, where he talked about um, that last test where, you know, his wife had had a, pre- a premature birth and the, the baby was sort of uh, in, in hospital, in, in the ICU, I think. I just can't uh, imagine and, it. Can and, you, and, and, yeah, how do you play cricket? And, 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 quite, and quite, he talked about a text exchange with Collingwood where Collingwood said, uh, give it all you've got. And Malam was like, to be honest, the tank is just empty. And so I think you do have to take a pinch of salt those last three tests. And he, before that, you know, he looked like a guy who, that was kind of what England had been looking for in that number three slot of a guy who was supporting Joe Root. They'd had quite a lot of quite big partnerships, Root clearly like batting with him. Um, so uh, any of those guys, I think possibly could come in and not disgrace themselves. But I think we also know they're not going to be the guy that comes in and takes England's test team to, you know, a position where it can compete home and away with uh, New Zealand, India, Australia, probably Pakistan. So I guess it's about like the, the ceiling versus the floor kind of thing. Duckett, Duckett's control numbers are, are surprisingly good for like a guy who plays a lot of white ball cricket. Obviously, he's, I know he's a red ball player and his red ball record is, is really strong, but you still think you're probably going to be owing more towards a kind of flary, flary player, but he's, he's controlled and he, he also is, has a very good record against the new ball. I think he'd be a bolter if he does keep things going. I mean, I, I think I said last summer, very, very uh, kind of halfway through a Welsh fire game at the Oval saying this guy plays a test this summer. You know, we'd all had a few. But at the same time, I think he's closer to test selection than... You you know, some people probably think because he yeah. is he is a he is a, a talent in that form of the game and I think Milan is probably a little bit more of like a just a kind of proven player you know what you're going to get and he, he's almost like a kind of slightly deluxe Joe Denley of like he gets us through the next year and then we bring through the next guy be that Bahannon or be that Ducky in in 12 months and I think that there's there's logic to that selection um who was the third guy you mentioned uh, well it was Vince he doesn't bat three in county cricket and is you know, he's changed. I can't Vince. believe I forgot Vince. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I've I've stayed up all night. You know, there's a it's, it's that scene in Always Sunny where it's just like the guy in front of all the post you notes, and like I cannot make James Vince's compelling case to be in the side. He is a yeah, he's just so uncontrolled these days. Like he he's basically a parody of the guy who when he was gone who basically he he would nick off occasionally, but more so when he's facing Mitchell Stark at 95 mile an hour. Whereas now his numbers are, his deeper line numbers just aren't very good. And even that 100 he got was sort of like a, a better than a runner ball, sort of like counter-attack on quite a flat pitch. I mean, I still want to marry it. Yeah. Like, it's still incredible. And I would love to see him giving a go. Maybe maybe Rob Key's got a, uh, you know, an eye on that in terms of, you know, he, that's going to be like his Joss Butler pick when Smith came in. I know he's not selected, but you know what I mean? And that, you, you know, you never quite account for taste in this kind of thing. But yeah, sadly, I can't make that as yeah, much as I'd like to. Duckett is... His numbers are really good, but he bats in a way that's very different to how you'd imagine your number three batting in Test cricket. I mean, he had this really good game against Worcester this week, striking, I think, above 100 in both innings on a very green wicket with one incredibly small boundary. I mean, I spoke to Duckett at the start of the year and he was he was he he made a point not too dissimilar to what Crawley said, the famous, you're doing well to average 35. He was saying that not, say, 
know that a very good way of them getting results is having pitches where you know it's 200 plays 250 and they've got lots of good young batters there and they're kind of fine averaging 35 if they win games but you know do you bat like that on a flat one against a really good attack? Probably not. And, you know, there's a lot of chat about how different county cricket is to test cricket. I'd say scoring 120 runs off 110 balls in a game in Div 2 on a green pitch is just so different to test cricket. Um, just just quickly, we don't know if there will be another spot slot in the middle order. It might be that Bairstow takes a glove at seven and there's a spot at five or folks stays at seven and Bairstow bats at five. But if it is Bairstow dropping down to bat seven and there's a spot at five, who would you like to see? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you said that. So our numbers basically identified that, you know, and people will not like this, but in terms of what you actually project the returns to be, between Folks, Butler and Bairstow, there's actually very little in it. But, you know, we we probably expect, you know, in, in terms of looking at the, the red ball numbers, Butler to probably do the best, Bairstow to do slightly less and Folks to do slightly less, but equally that's just batting. So you're, you're not accounting for Folks' slightly better goal. You've got to always pick your best keeper though. You've got to pick your best keeper <laughs> at the end of the day. So yeah. Um, and the other guy who came up really well in our numbers is uh, is Alex Davies, which is yeah. quite interesting because obviously, again, a guy who's kind of been around probably a tier below next cab off the rank, but he's a guy who's got good control numbers, you know, decent, decent record, decent underlying numbers. So I think basically England have got, you know, the problem of this England side is not who bats number seven. They've got some cracking players mm. there, but let's say best. And you've not even mentioned Ben Brown. I've not even mentioned Ben Brown, who did also come out very well. But yeah, Joe's not here to uh, to push his case or to have his case pushed for him by Ben. Um, I think the interesting num- names that kind of come up are in, in the middle order, um, if you're thinking Stokes at six, looking at the number five position, um, it, it's Ollie Pope. Ollie, Ollie Pope is the standout player in England. There is no there is no one better than him. And that that is unequivocal. If you are going to try and win games now, you pick Ollie Pope. That that is where we are where we are going. However, there are guys who offer an alternative if England wants to say to Ollie Pope, go and play, you know, go and play some white ball cricket, free yourself up, have a summer of just hanging around in Clapham and just doing oval things rather than you know trekking around the country, maybe not playing every game. Uh, but the standout name that comes up is Harry Brook, and I know he's young, and I know he's come through recently. But again, a bit like Bahannon, there's just so much there to like in terms of the control, the the record when he gets the opportunity to face the new ball, the the underlying numbers are, are outstanding. And the fact that he's also done it in white ball cricket, I know that's not an indicator of success. And that, that, that genuinely is true that in terms of predicting red ball success, white ball success has not really anything to do with it. But there is an encouraging element of someone being able to dominate the 100, which is, you know, a very high standard of domestic cricket. PSL as well. And then he an goes to the PSL. PSL and plays brilliantly as well. And, and I, know it, I, I know he had a shocker of a BBL in between. But at the same time, I think there's a... There's a there's a feel of a guy who's who's coming to the fore, and I I, I would very much still pick Ollie Pope. There's no no question about that. But Brooks a really interesting alternative. What's happened to why hasn't Ollie Pope cracked it? I think partly because he he naturally is very aggressive. He's an aggressive player who, as a result, is going to fail slightly more often than more consistent more you know lower heartbeat um more defensive players just because he's going to give a few more chances and as a result things are going to go a bit more a bit wrong i think he's had the misfortune of being of playing in a slightly ropey side and you want you know i think ollie pope is an incredible number six when he's coming in at 300 for 300 for four um for who isn't an incredible number six at that point but i think pope's often been a firefighter and we saw from his first in, in test cricket that he's not a top order player that's not his game he's michael clark he's he's not ian bell he's not that kind of stylish guy but who's got a bit of grit he he is flary he is a bit weird i i would say there isn't 
apart from all the stuff about guards, and I know that Butch isn't here, so I don't want to even mention the idea of an off-stump guard, but I think that shows that he has been tweaked, he has techniques been been tweaked around, and I think that's not necessarily an indication of a guy who's been backed to the hilt by the people in charge and the fact that you know there he flew out his batting coach in the, in the winter and all this kind of stuff it doesn't suggest a particularly supportive environment i think he's the kind of guy and i know i, I don't i know nothing about him in terms of a presence in the dressing room and i think zach crawley's far more likely to fill this position if you you know if you listen to the whispers and the rumors but he's the kind of guy who you almost want to say you're now vice captain you play every 20 you play the next 20 tests you are absolutely locked in please just make some runs and at that but I, I basically, I'm not willing to write him off yet, and I'm not willing to send him to the Shires because the guys we're talking about who are going to replace him in the side are not that good. Unless you go for best out of five, and then Folks or Butler uh, in number seven. I am going to keep saying Folks or Butler because I don't want Josh Butler's test career to be over as much as as we mentioned as, as much as it should be. Uh, as much as it seems to have been, the rights have been have been cast. It's uh, he's he's still basically as good as the options that England have got. One one other thing I guess you'd say about Pope, and to an extent you can probably do this with any player, but you can find sort of mitigation just if you run through how his career has progressed in terms of when you obviously when you look at twenty tests, average below thirty, that's look that and that is that is bad. Obviously he's not been the player that we think he could be. Uh but you know, so you've got the, those first two tests when he was very, very young. Okay, so perhaps you can set them aside. Uh then you've got the recall when actually he did well to very well to begin with, you know, got a seventy when keeping that second test, got that brilliant hundred uh in what is fourth or fifth test on recall uh had an okay summer after that but it wasn't as good as he could have been but that was still that's the kind of the consolidating summer that someone has in a kind of weird environment still played some very very good innings in that time got a brilliant was it a 90 odd against pakistan i think uh so that and at that point you think okay this guy he's very very close to cracking it then he muffs up his shoulder and is and, and that and then gets recalled in india having not actually played any competitive cricket for like is it eight months or six months because he's had this pretty bad injury uh, and also having had an injury you expect you know you can't even be training you can't be hitting balls so it comes back inside at that point and on surfaces which we're doing absolutely loads uh, and that will just set you back quite a long way and then you have again uh, like a in and out of the side a few times during the, the, the summer and then in the ashes again was was what was recalled at the end of the ashes when you're like this guy's you know, he, he was dropped for his own good and has been recalled because of no one else. Yeah, I, 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 uh, so so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, other players would have been able to work through all those things and get those things. So it's not, it's not total mitigation, but you can also say this isn't a guy who's just had, you know, 20 tests in a row and has come out averaging less than 30 on all pitches where other people have been able to score runs and that sort of thing. There is some mitigation there, I guess. That, that is true. But I guess with, with Pope, I think no one would disagree with what Ben's saying that he is the standout batter outside of Root and Stokes in England. Um, but part of becoming a excellent international player is dealing with extremely challenging environments, and he hasn't been able to yet. Um, it was it a lot of the examples you bring up there are, are completely fair, but equally, it, it wasn't impossible to score runs in those situations. But also, I think um, I think it's important to realise we're not talking in generalities here or like kind of just vague things about like, you know, Pope, Pope's the best. Like if Pope was just slightly better than, or like even just you know, quite a lot better than the next best option mm-hmm. and he's failed for 25 tests in it in, and then you go, okay, well, he needs a good dropping, that guy. Back to, back to county cricket, go make some runs, lad. He is so far ahead of everyone else that 
it almost makes a mockery of it. There, 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 there is no reason to not have him in the side. He is just so much better. And the question you almost have to ask is, it's more, it's more structural. I think Ollie Pope's success and failure, or failure in inverted commas, is more existential for English cricket than should he be in the test side. It's why can a guy be that good there and that bad there? We're not talking about Ram Prakash not failing to step up or failing to step up in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s. Or, you know, this isn't a Graham Hick thing. This is a guy who is, is young, is coming through, is consistently making runs and then not being given the right chances or being used in the wrong way. He's been blooded at the wrong times. I, I just think there's a there's a, a, a concern that Ollie Pope is potentially the best spotlight on what is wrong with county cricket, if you know what I mean, in terms of how do you score your runs here? How do you score your runs in test cricket? How do you score your runs at the Oval? How do you sc- it's, it's, it's just so messy. His career is messy right now and it shouldn't be. He should be serenely working his way like Cam Green to 10,000 runs. And also... And this is used as a stick to beat him with, but he is an exception to the rule uh, that I talked about earlier with players who get dropped, not being able to, you know, get back to their previous best in county cricket. When whenever he plays for Surrey, he just gets loads and loads of runs. And this is, this is, I mean, obviously the oval thing that there is something in that, and he does average a hundred there, uh, and he does have a lot of his career hundreds there. But also, even away from the oval, he is what is, is it average second to Bahan, I think, among all. English first class players, obviously last r- r- yeah, r- it's like well last four there, or so. five. It's last four or five years. The like third or fourth best English batsman is Ollie Pope away from the Oval. Yeah, so like, it, it, <laughs> what do you want him to do, lads? It's overstated, uh, but yeah, but and, and we haven't mentioned Dan Lawrence, who's had a tough start to the season, has had injury issues as well. So he made a ninety-one two tests ago. Again, I th- almost think in, in normal times uh, he might well just get that first test, but it's a kind of a last chance thing before you do have to go back and score some runs. But I'd say he's probably behind those two in the pecking order would be my sort of gut feel for how that's going to go. But it's, uh, he, he will also be in the reckoning, I think, come that selection meeting. I should, I should say, I know we need to move on, but um, Dan Lawrence is interesting because I think a lot of people maybe bracket him in the same way as Crawley, as like a kind of flary guy who looks great and he's got a bit about him and like, oh yeah, you look, you know, there's, there's something, there's an aesthetic appeal more necessarily than a scorecard appeal. But he actually does really well by all our numbers um, in terms of, you know, different models. Not incredibly well, like not off the chart, kind of punching the door down. But he consistently scores enough runs in low scoring games, which I know is a problem in and of itself. But you can only score on what's put in front of you. And he, he's controlled enough and he, he backs it up with underlying numbers enough. Um, I just think it's interesting that some, so just because a player looks good and has a bit about him and is from a state school doesn't necessarily mean they're a scrapper who can't, whose qualities can't be defined by raw number, by basic numbers. It's actually, no, he's, he's, he is quite good at batting and, and probably probably should be very much in, in, in contention. I, th- I, think, I think he would be hardly, hard done by if Brooke leapt ahead of him already, as much as I'd like to see, that, see Brooke. That, that is interesting. Uh, moving on to the IPL, we've got a question from ESPN Quick Info's Matt Roller. What's behind Johnny Bairstow's poor run in T20 cricket and how much should he play in each format this year with the T20 World Cup in October? Bairstow is averaging 11 and striking 105 in this year's IPL after not a great T20 World Cup. Um, surely it's not as simple as whenever he gets good in red ball cricket, white ball cricket goes completely opposite direction. I think, or, or is I, it, is I think it? it is. I, I think it is. And I, you know... I've been on this show a huge number of times and you all know I love I love Besto. I think he, I think he's amazing. Um I think he's yeah an underrated Red Bull player because he's been used in wrong positions and an underrated great of white ball cricket. Uh, but there is a straightforward fact that his successes don't overlap. You know, he basically go he, he takes a holiday from one format, dominates the other and then vice versa. And yeah, you look at his numbers, basically his last 
it, it's it's almost comical that like his last positive impact, which is cricket his measure for basically like better than the average, better than what you'd expect in T20 cricket. Um, his last positively impacting series or tournament or competition was the hundred, which is the last thing he played before he came back into the test side. And sudden, and all of a sudden since then, he had, he's had a bad World Cup. He didn't succeed. Um, and he hasn't had a good IPL. And you can see you can see that he just isn't quite the same player. He's not good against he's not he's not struggling against either pace or spin particularly he's had he's struggled massively against pace in this IPL particularly he's averaging nine um but he's scoring more importantly uh, like a runner ball against both there is something fundamentally wrong with his overall game rather than a, a kind of specific issue I think what's what is maybe at play and I'm I, I'm hesitant to blame it because at the time I, I I was a big fan of the move was Obviously, England moved Bairstow from the top of the order to number four because they basically realised they had two of the same player in Bairstow and Butler in T20 cricket. They wanted Butler to open, but they also wanted Jason Roy's rapid start and they wanted Bairstow to dominate spin through the middle. They go to South Africa, Bairstow does brilliantly in that role. And that is a really, really hard role to play. It's probably the hardest role in T20 cricket, batting four, because you've you've kind of got to be a bit of both. Um but then since then, he, he does, he is instinctively an opener. We've seen it in ODI cricket. That's how he kind of gets his juices flowing. He comes out, you know, cross-batted fours through the, through the infield and he's off to a flyer while everyone's in. And then once he's set, that's when he hits into out and he can smack leg spin out of the ground. I think in, in retrospect, it was kind of remarkable that he did so well being thrown in at number four, which is where he's been batting for, for Punjab Kings as well. In, in, in this ongoing IPL where he struggled and then they promoted him to open uh, last night as we speak and, he, and he, he did badly again but you know small sample size and all that um, and he'll probably come good for the end of the year as long as Punjab don't go out which they probably will but then I, I, I basically just don't really understand going into the summer what England do do with him personally I think they need him more in T20 cricket than in Test cricket and that's not because they're overloaded with brilliant options in, in Test cricket in terms of batting but we spoke about the great options they've got for keepers down the order. And I think, do you want Bairstow to be blocking the progression of Brooke, Bahannon, Lawrence, Pope? I know we don't want to look too long-term and there's that sticking plaster element of stop the bleeding first and then we'll look to the future. But, you know, Bairstow is hugely important to having them do in the T20 World Cup in, you know, six months' time. They need him through the middle to be in that number three position. Stokes is moving increasingly away from the T20 side. Milan is maybe moving away from it as well. You still need a number three. Bairstow probably is the most natural number three there, mowing at four and all that. So you probably need Bairstow in T20 cricket to be at his best if England are going to win the World Cup. How do you prioritise that? Do you drop him from the test team and tell him to go and score runs in the 100? I don't know. Is that he's is, not going to take it particularly well after well, 200s in the last? Well, no. Five but at tests. the same time, if you, that's where strong leadership comes in, I'm not saying that's the right decision. By the way, I'm just saying that's that's where your, your MDs and your, your your chief selectors and your coaches need to show their mettle and say, no, this is for the this is for the good of the game. I guess it's probably also a decent case for why you need one coach, not two. Because if you're the if you're the Red Bull coach saying, Johnny, you've just scored 200s in a couple of tests. Sorry, mate. We want you to go and play the handy. It's not. It's not going to go down well for anyone. So I don't. Know, again, it's 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 very messy. The best. All, all of England's lower middle order selection debates are grubby and confusing and contorting in on themselves at this point. I I if 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 I had to make a choice between Whitewall Bairstow and Test Bairstow, I'd pick Test Bairstow. I think I'd, I'd take a lot of what you're saying, but I do think that England that, that they do just have lots more good Whitewall players than they have Test players, and I think. Obviously, Bairstow, his overall record and how his numbers have come out will be based on that sort of those years of wildly fluctuating test form. But he, along with 
Root and Stokes is like he's one of the three batters England have got at the moment who have ever been anywhere near world class in Test cricket, which he was in in 2016. And and if it is the fact that you know he if he's not playing white cricket, he can be a world class Test batter. Uh, then that is much. England have lots of other white players who could, or they have other white players who could be world class. They just don't have anyone who has anywhere who has shown they have close to the ceiling that Bairstow has. If if he if he goes back down to if if that's what they choose to do, he goes back down to number seven and has the same form that he had in that 2016 summer, then England all of a sudden have a a very well functioning middle to lower middle order, and that is a hugely valuable thing. And I think also even from a uh, a point of view of what is most important to English cricket I think that actually them being even just like a a competent test side in a way is better than them even winning the T20 World Cup just in terms of what the public care about what people engage with and that sort of thing I think that that is a a more valuable thing if you were to choose one of those two things as well so I would go with Bester in test cricket if you had to make the choice but I would also just give him a bit longer to see if he can work it out because it's quite easy to uh, to to think in these binaries but I think you, you end up giving him some white ball cricket and probably make a decision quite close to the T20 World Cup while trying to have the best of both worlds until then. And also, he's not really had the opportunity to play much ODI cricket, which is his best format. So the opportunity for him to, and obviously just naturally, it's a bit of a mix of the two. Obviously, it's more T20, but there's a sense that that, that is his opportunity where he gets his form for both and kind of draws his energy from. And so you can make a you can make a case that having a decent run of some ODI cricket would give him the confidence to maybe get a bit of game back in both. And then we'll see where we go. Suddenly, you've got an all-format Bairsto, who which is, as much as people like to take the mick, an incredibly valuable thing for English cricket. Absolutely. Um, IPL chat, wasn't it? Great IPL chat. <laughs> um, the big news from the IPL this week was that MS Dhoni has taken over the CSK captaincy from Ravindra Jadeja. Um, it wasn't, hasn't been going great for CSK. Jadeja's not had a great IPL. Immediately promoted himself number three as well and then <laughs> scored a eight or seven, I think. Absolute stinker, yeah. Early. I mean, he's had, he's had a couple of good knocks actually, for, which is pretty pretty impressive, really. I think the, the Dhoni thing is interesting because it kind of, I think the retention, his, his retention massively hampered CSK, obviously, because he's not an elite T20 player. He's not, he's, he's, he's not really worth anywhere near the amount of money that they retained him for. And so the retention value was probably in his captaincy. And then he take the captaincy off him, or he gives up the captaincy, and all of a sudden it's like, hang on. So you've we've te- we've retained you for all that money, and I know obviously it's the IPL. There's there's various other things flying around, but at the same time, it did suddenly seem like that's not really fair on Jadeja to have you know put him in this situation. And so in a way, it's kind of good that he's take, taken the reins back um, and kind of taken a bit of responsibility. Mm-hmm. They're not. I mean, I don't think they're I don't think they're mathematically out of it at this stage. They are. They're still kind of in with a, a punch's chance, um, but they would have to punch everyone get, get um, on with it yeah yeah I mean they've, they've not they've just not they've just not really clicked um, in the same way as Mumbai it's nice to see the big boys not having a, a great year for once <laughs> mm. um, Ben there was the, in the KKR Radistan game of the day there was a modicum of controversy with Radistan not happy with some of the wide calls is there a lack of consistency over wide calls in T20 cricket uh, well uh, I think I think you say there's consistency I think you'd probably argue that it's not consistent with how the laws are written I suppose I think that in general it it almost doesn't seem if a batter moves about too much those guidelines are the guidelines that they stick to generally Uh, and you could argue that is unfair on the bowlers and perhaps removes a slight tactical element where if a batter moves way across the offside why shouldn't be able to pitch it just on the cut strip and be a distance outside of it but still hittable when they get there that sounds like quite, quite clever bowling to me but was the kind of thing that was being punished i suppose so there's an update to the laws coming in in october which do- won't deal with this directly but you wonder if the fact that it addresses batters moving about could empower umpires to have a bit more 
subjectivity here. That the change to laws will be that. Uh, so what we see sometimes at the moment is a batter will step outside leg stump uh, as if they're going to open up the offside. So a bowler will spear in at where the toes are. The batter will then step back inside the line. And as the laws are currently written, that should be a wide. Uh, the law change will be that if it would have kind of passed down the line of the batter where they were at any point during the bowler's run up, then that should not be a wide. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that has an impact. There's also debate over should teams be able to review wides. I wouldn't have a huge problem with that but I would also say that generally with DRS reviews the uh, the third umpire only takes a decision on statements of fact basically so if you if the technology says there is an edge or the technology says this ball would have passed over the stumps and wide calls especially the ones outside off will always have an element of subjectivity so it would be a change to how the DRS well could you not change that by just I I mean I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head here as much as a said that I think you should be able to review wides. I guess there needs to be a little, an, another stage. And yeah, I mean, maybe just giving bowlers a little bit more wiggle room, but removing the importance of where a batsman goes and then saying it's just binary. So just drawing two lines, the batsman can go wherever they want. Mm-hmm. And then if the ball goes outside that, according to, you know, the Y coordinate of this Hawkeye ball is minus 0.3 or whatever, that means it's a wide. It doesn't matter what the batsman does. And I know there'll be issues with that and it would go wrong for a bit. But I think I think it's just, it's frustrating watching, you know, we saw it in the World Cup final. And because it was about the eighth most controversial controversial decision within the last 10 minutes of that game, it didn't really get talked about. But it, it massively influences white ball games. You know, we're talking, we're talking like huge swings, like five, six percent swings at the end of games. That's we, and it's within our power to to change it. So I think I think we should be trying to do a little bit more. Yeah, I don't I don't have an issue with that. I guess the thing the thing is is that it just would be a step away from what just the laws currently say, where you know that those lines are as in the playing positions they are guidelines. They are not where wides have to be. And laws are the, the the laws at the moment tell umpires to make a subjective call on if a batter could have hit the ball. If you say no, it's x wide of leg stump and x wide of off stump, and that's what a wide is. That would be you could definitely do that with. Hawkeye on on DRS that that would be completely fine, but it would just be a change from what cricket is. And cricket tournaments don't generally take that kind of leap away from the laws. Uh, there's occasionally slight tweaks, but nothing. I mean, I tell you, I tell you, who could do it is the hundred because they, they've led. You know, they've obviously led the way on a couple of rules that have then been shown to be better than the existing rules, and the ICC have taken them on board. So there's an element the 100 kind of has that veneer of you know we're allowed to be a bit more experimental but but those are also still generally driven by the mcc i guess yeah, and, and the yeah, other yeah, thing yeah. is is that this would be a change which would true, if, true. if the mcc laws all of a sudden have like a distance wide of often leg stump firstly that wouldn't really work for test or first class cricket where you have a much more lenient down the leg size so you'd yeah, have to have course, different laws with those things and also it would be very very hard to say in uh in recreational cricket, when obviously you don't have Hawkeye, you often don't have even the guidelines painted, that would um, uh, then you have basically a different set of laws, professional yeah, and fair recreational point. cricket, which is not the case at the moment. So there would be issues too. I'm not I'm not saying I'm against it, but those would be the uh, the stumbling blocks, I suppose. I'm, I'm, don't you think we're moving on without me mentioning my moment of the week? Yes, I can see you looking I, to wrap up. I, no, 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 I was literally about to ask you. <laughs> um, yeah, so my moment of the week was uh, Gujarat played Sunrisers uh, last week. I think it was on the day that the last podcast came out. I checked to make sure it counted and was legitimate. Um, basically, uh, Gujarat had slightly mucked up a chase as they have been wont to do. They've been they were, they've been in this kind of mad, chaotic side who just can't stop winning games in really stupid, weird ways. Um, and then basically they were coming up against Sunrisers in the last over, had to defend 22 with Marco Janssen, um, big left armour. 
uh, who's you know relatively reliable at the death, but not necessarily absolutely proven. And they had Rashid Khan and uh, Rahul Tuatia at the crease. Um, obviously, Tuatia has this uh, history of improbable uh, kind of comebacks. He's had one this season against Punjab, and then the, the famous one against um, against Punjab as well. <laughs> but then he came, basically came in and hits the first ball for six, and then Rashid Khan gets on strike, and then hits the boundaries for the rest of the over that get them to this chasing 22. And it's remarkable. And every six goes about a millimetre over the fielder on the rope, including the last one, which wins them the game. And Ian Bishop's going absolutely mad on commentary. And it's it's one of those ones where, for me, Gujarat's success this this season kind of sums up what's been good about the the um, the expansion to 10 teams, but also what's been you know less less satisfying about it. I hesitate to say bad, because I think you're going to publish this. Um, and, and so... Gujarat are a weird team. They haven't. They've got lots of players who are like not great, kind of slightly, you know, scrubs in terms of you know the stars and scrub structure of it. But they've also got Shubham Gill and Hardik Pandya, Rahul Tuatia, and David Miller stood up. Lockie, Miller, Lockie Miller, Lockie Ferguson, Mohammed Shami. They've all won games and they've all kind of you know in their moments grabbed games by the scruff of the neck and dragged uh, Gujarat to this incredible start. I think they won eight of their first nine matches. But I think it's partly it's partly great because they're a new side and they've been given this blank canvas for you know Gary Kirsten to to kind of paint his vision of of what a T20 side could look like and you know he's got the balance with with Hardik in there when he's fit and you know obviously the obvious genius of Rashid Khan and Mohammed Shami who's this incredibly improved new ball bowler. But then you've got these guys who are kind of also rams around him like David Miller's suddenly getting a full IPL season and we've seen that actually the quality is there to sustain it with the overseas players. But we're also seeing with some of the domestic guys around that there isn't necessarily that proven mm. tier below it. Um, and so what we've seen is this tournament has been probably the lowest quality IPL yet in terms of the actual cricket played. But the competition has been more exciting, I think, as a result, because the difference between the first and last, or first and eighth, probably because Mumbai have been atrocious, Um that has really dragged everyone together, I think. And it's it's made, you know, we, as, as we speak, we're, you know, we're ahead of the RCB-Chennai game. And if RCB win that, then it's an absolute dogfight for the playoffs. And we're talking about, you know, four or five teams going for two places. Rajasthan could still fall back into it. You know, it, it could be an incredibly tight finish to a season, which if you're looking at from the IPL supremacy point of view of like, it's just the best cricket in the world it's actually probably closer to PSL cricket, you know, the next best league, than it's ever been, with the PSL getting better and the IPL getting slightly worse. But it's still such an incredibly exciting tournament to watch because of that increase in competition between the sides. Mm. No, that, that is interesting. Um, you, you also wrote a really good piece this week on Tim David and how we generate hype for players. Do you want to kind of expand on the gist of what you were saying? Well the, well, the gist of it was is that I, I, I did every podcast going before the IPL saying how great it was that Tim David was going to get a gig and how he was going to tear it up. And then Mumbai dropped him after two games and I looked like a right mug. But basically, the, it, the piece was just about the idea that, you know, Tim David has been the best T20 batsman in the world, according to our numbers, for 12 months before the IPL auction. He gets signed by Mumbai. It's a you know, great moment for a guy who's not played, doesn't play first-class cricket, doesn't really play list-day cricket. It's kind of come through as a, a, a specialist T20 player. Obviously, he's, you know, there's mixed of like the Singaporean and Australian thing but there's kind of an associate glean it's a great story and he comes in and then he goes in and he's the next big thing and then Mumbai lose patience with him after two games because they want to play with their new toy that they've got which is an 18 year old South African called Dewar Brevis who is even more the next big thing who's torn up the under 19 World Cup and is clearly incredibly talented but is also got this kind of boost to his reputation of looking a bit like A.B. de Villiers and saying he wants to be A.B. de Villiers and having the name Baby A.B. And it was just, it just struck a chord with me that 
T20 cricket and particularly the focus on IPL cricket is so driven these days by not agendas because that sounds like a loaded term, but trajectories of players peaking at the right time. Like Tim David probably went for two or three crore more because he made huge runs in the PSL two days before the auction. We like to pretend that teams aren't influenced by that kind of thing. I know people on the tables, they are. Like it does matter. Like they, they do see those kind of things. People who are not necessarily across T20 cricket around the world, they see it and they get caught up in the hype and they get this moment of like, oh, we're getting the next big thing. But then as soon as they don't deliver immediately, they have a you know this little, this little dip, particularly if you're a low order batsman, you just move on to the next thing. And the IPL is probably the worst for it because it's the it's the the highest standard and as a result we hold players to a higher standard to a you know higher accountability and if you don't immediately succeed and we've seen it with Liam Livingston Liam Livingston had a terrible Rajasthan career with like the four or five opportunities that he got Glenn Phillips was getting picked over him he's an IPL fraud get him out of the side you know Liam Livingston and it's just like yeah maybe not because then he comes back in he's given a consistent role in a side which is backing him I'm not convinced by Punjab in lots of ways but they clearly have an ethos of how they want to play and it's basically everyone be Liam Livingston and shock he's doing really well and he's succeeding and it just shows that we, we get caught up in the maybe we's a you know a, a kind term but I think a certain group of, uh, of fans maybe are, are too critical of players when they don't succeed straight away and I think I think you know you don't necessarily want to defend guys that are getting you know a million pound to sit on the backsides for a month but it must be hard when you feel like you're the coming guy and you're you're the next big thing and then all of a sudden you're just you're sat playing practice games and doing throwdowns for, for Rohit. And also like what you were saying earlier about Brooke, who had, who's had two or three amazing white ball tournaments in the last 12 months, but one really, really bad one in the middle in what was arguably the weakest of the leagues that he played in. And also like that, that role in particular, batting four, five, six in T20 is just so difficult. So high variance. You're not actually yeah. facing that many balls when you have a bad tournament. And Simon Dole always talks about this on commentary. And I think it's a really, it's a really apt point, but the pressure of being the overseas as well. Mm. It's not, it's not nothing. You're, Especially you know, when you've not done it that many you're times. You're a young before. English kid who's just torn up the hundred. But by torn up the hundred, you mean had three or four really good innings in a really you know a high quality tournament. But then you've been asked to go go overseas and go to a new country and go to a new environment and succeed for a side who have been pretty solid recently. And you know these guys have had Joffre Archer as their overseas in the last two years. You know, and you're expected to deliver something similar. They've had Tim David as their overseas very recently, and I, I can understand the pressure. I think we we all we're still we're still in an environment where. We, we're we're learning how to understand exposure in T20 leagues and the idea of you know if if uh, Harry Brook went and played in the in the Vijay Hazari or the Said Mushtaq Ali you know we would probably get, or you know or even just if he went and played in the Ranji we would we wouldn't expect him to smash it straight away if he was like playing as you know for the 28th best Red Bull side in India he goes in has an opportunity maybe has a couple of games players have always gone and played in overseas tournaments whether it be grade cricket in Australia or whatever but their performances aren't live on telly for hundreds of millions of people to watch. And so we're seeing learning curves happen in real time. And I think as a cricket culture, as a, as a young cricket culture, particularly focused on T20 cricket, we're not used to dealing with the highs and lows of that. And I think that that is something that we'll, we'll learn in, in coming, coming years, I think, or I hope we do, because it's pretty grim at the moment. It's about the price tags which players just have no control over. Uh, particularly, and so, particularly in auctions as well. Exactly. So, so you end up buying Tim David and actually when you're, it's funny when you're making that auction decision, you're doing it because, you know, this is a young guy who has lots of potential. We think he could be a guy to build this, the, the side around in a few years time. So he's worth that much money. And also it's because of what other teams want that will uh, affect how much a player is worth. And then all of a sudden it gets to the tournament time. It's like, right, we have spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions on this guy and we expect a player who is worth that much 
right now and and that becomes an actually you know and you can almost get and end up getting less time on the side if more money has been spent on you because you're not a you know a 14 crore player uh when you you know that's not your fault that you're that you know <laughs> you uh you it's and you end up not making decisions based on who other players available to us and what's the best thing we can pick it's like this guy is not delivering on what we expected so let's you know and we're pla- and, maybe, and maybe we're planning to get rid of him and so we're not going to have the side around him now that's it's, it's yeah and also not to put too fine a point on it but teams shit themselves because they realize half after five games they're like we've won one of our five games and we need to win nine to go through we need to start winning right now we'll deal with whether or not we retain Tim David at the end of the season or whatever. I mean, a great example is Besto. Like, Punjab spent, you know, big money on him. Not an obscene amount of money, but big money. And he's not delivered anything. There's a decent argument that they should drop Besto because Rajapaksa is smashing it. Livingston's smashing it. Bringing an extra bowler and boost their side or go with Odin Smith or something. There's, there's, there's arguments around it, but Besto is their flagship guy along with Livingston. So you kind of, you need to back him through. But I, I, I do just think sometimes it just shows you like, best laid plans and all of that then everyone you go into these seasons and you think that we you know we, we want to play cricket this way he's our he's our gun guy he's our gun bowler this is how we're going to do it and then it takes so little time because people panic people worry about their jobs people worry about their futures and suddenly everything becomes how to get through the next three games how to get through the next four games and that's when you end up with really random team selections and people being dropped who don't necessarily deserve to be dropped and i think sometimes from the outside you have to recognize that not everything is being made with the cool analytical calm i'm looking to simulate the ipl 150 times and actually if you bat best do it three he's slightly better than at four i think sometimes you need to realize it's about winning game of cricket this week because then it's better for everyone in the long run i don't know I, i i'm just i love the ipl but I, I, the circus around it is is exhausting, and the cricket the cricket is just unreal, and I, I love it more than any cricket in the world. But it does it takes it out of you, and part of that is because people are so keen to judge so quickly, judge so much. So yeah, quickly. I, I think on on overseas players and expectations around them, I think that is something that I think people are just going to have to get used to over time. That you know the IPL is the best franchise league in the world, and you're expecting players who have not. No players like Tim David, who, by the way, did well the other day. Players like him to come in, come into a level they've never played at before, and expect them to be one of the best players in that at that level they've never played at before. Like that is when you put it like that is just unrealistic. So I think that would be something that you know I mentioned speaking to Duckett earlier. I remember he he said like, you know what, it's really difficult being an overseas player, and like also particularly people, in COVID times as well. And people don't appreciate the differences between each league, not just from a quality point of view, but in terms of just surfaces ground dimensions it's a different challenge in each in each different league um and for a younger player that's that is more that's more challenging final bit of news today uh nicholas puran has been named as west indies new white ball captain replacing kieran pollard on on many levels the obvious replacement but i guess this this probably means that he's even less likely to play test cricket in the short or medium term future which which is a shame and finally there is a new women's tournament being played in dubai at the moment called the fair break invitational uh, where there are 90 players from 35 different countries, including some of the best players in the world, like Shabnim, Ismail and Sophie Eccleston. I spoke to Georgie Heath, who's out there at the moment, about the competition, which is unlike any other in the world game at the moment. Georgie, a very simple question first up. What is the Fair Break Invitational? So Fair Break Invitational is basically a massive celebration of the global women's game so it's a tournament involving six teams with players from over 30 countries around the world and that's full member status and associate nations so we've got there's one team we've got here and it's got 
13 nations represented. So it's six teams coming together for a T20 tournament across the next two weeks. We're in Dubai and it's just going to be a representation of how good the women's game can be across the world and giving a chance for those nations who don't necessarily have the coverage they get to prove what it is that they can do and how good the women's game has become and just how far it can go, really. Mm, You're spending a lot of time in and amongst the camps. Um, Have you spoken to any of the players who are from Associate Nations? How are they feeling about this opportunity to to play with some some of the best players in the world? Yeah, it's so funny because like sometimes I find myself starstruck by some of the big names. And then you talk to other players and they're like, I'm being bowled at by Shabnam Ismail today. Or I today was bowling at, you know, Soph Devine, who's in the nets. Or I sat on the boundary rope the other day and Soph Devine just was just talking, you know. And you can tell everyone is just picking up and everyone is absorbing from each other. But it doesn't just work that way. So you've got, you know, your big global star World Cup winners learning from players from we've got some from Vanuatu you know we've got players from Zimbabwe Maryam Masonda she's here she's the captain of the Zimbabwean team and she hits a fantastic six and you you know there's just all these players just absorbing so much from each other already learning so much about their different cultures and it's really nice to see it's sort of got that kind of atmosphere and I don't know if that's just because the competition hasn't kicked off properly yet but Everyone is just loving life and loving being involved and they were out in the nets. And when it's nets time, it's concentration time. But aside from that, it's not just, you know, like when you see a World Cup, it's very insular. You're in your team. That, but it's got this feel about it. And it's, you can tell that everyone is just so excited that it's to celebrate the women's game and what it's become and what it can go to from here. But the action is going to kick off today. And so I think maybe it's down to business from there and it'd be less, you know, less giggles. What's what's the atmosphere been like up until this point? Because you know there'll be players there who wouldn't have played with you know um, some of the bigger name players before. So what what's that been like seeing the mixing of of the very different worlds? Yeah, it's definitely very much a mix of different worlds. But I think actually like everyone is so accepting of that. That's how it is. That you sort of come into it with that expectation. But you can tell that some of the players maybe look at these big global stars and they're like, oh wow. And then they're like, actually, you know what? we're all on a level playing field here. We're all just playing in the same competition. We're on the same team. No name is bigger than the team, you know? So you've got some of these huge global names. You know, you've got your Marizan Caps, your Danny Wyatt, your number one bowler in the world, Sophie Eccleston. But she's just a spirit team member and that's how it is. And she's there to do what she does for her team, regardless of what her past might be there. They're all there working for the... They're looking for that trophy, which was unveiled the other day. It's very nice looking. I got nice and close to it and was like, oh, this is, this is quite a snazzy trophy. Definitely not getting my name on this one. But yeah, it's yeah, it's looking so good. And like the associate nations are, you just can't understand. When you look at them playing, you're like, how is this not getting the coverage? Like some of the shots these girls can play are insane. And there was one of the Hong Kong players the other day was just facing Tash Farron in the nets, you know, and you might think. Hong Kong player, you know, facing up against someone who's played for England, whatever, but she's absolutely bossing it and owning it. And it's just so nice to see because you're like, actually, this is going to prove what these other nations have got to offer. And it's fab. And how did the tournament come about? And do do we know already if this is a one-off tournament or is this going to be something that's going to be held um, every year? Well, referring to it as the inaugural one makes me think hopefully more in the future. And I don't know if it would be a every year i'm thinking probably every two years and potentially in hong kong for the next one but don't quote me on that one but i would think that's the case and i think they are hoping to you know it's going to get that coverage it's 
been covered in so many countries across the world. Like you can even get it over in England on free sports on Sky and there's a lot of streaming going on. So I think it is the hope that it's going to be the first of many and prove that this is the time and the space for this kind of women's tournament. Mm, fantastic. Well, thanks for your time, Georgie. Can't wait to watch it. That is all we have time for today. Cheers, Ben. Cheers, Ben. This has been the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.